It's November 10th, 2021, and welcome to the new reality edition of Bite Marks Cafe right here on Hawaii Public Radio, where we serve you the first bite of today's science, technology, and innovation. I'm Bert Lum. First up, we'll have Omar Sultan from Sultan Ventures, and he's here to tell us about the Accelerate HI uh, launch of Cohort 3 and their, uh, I guess, their group called Pre-X, and he'll get into the details of that. And of course, uh, We'll be then joined by Ken Chambers and Richard Wainscote from the Institute for Astronomy, and we'll talk about asteroid hunting on top of Haleakala. But now, I want to welcome Omar. Omar, back to Bite Mars Cafe. He's from Sultan Ventures, and he's here to tell us about Accelerate Hawaii and the launch of uh, Cohort 3, their Pre-X program, which is a free four-week virtual investment readiness and business scaling program. Welcome to the show, Omar. Hey, Bert. Thanks for having me and allowing me to connect with your uh, listeners. Well, good to have you back. And, of course, uh, you know, I guess the last time I had you on was, was uh, you know, the launch of Cohort 2 for uh, Pre-X. And, <clears throat> you know, i got to hand it to you. That's a pretty quick turnaround. I mean, four weeks, and then now you're ready to launch <laughs> Cohort 3. That's, that's, a, that's a pretty ag- aggressive schedule. It is. It's very aggressive, but it's intentionally designed to be aggressive like that. I mean, COVID's changed everything for everyone, right? And so rapid response and support services uh, for Hawaii's entrepreneurs and businesses is really important. So it's fast for uh, more and more companies here in Hawaii. Well, before you get into, uh, you know, the application for Cohort 3, why don't you tell us a little bit, of how, little bit about how Cohort 2 went? Cohort 2 was awesome. We had... Um, like maybe under 100 companies apply. It's a very fast process, so um, we expect the entrepreneurs and companies to be fast about their application as well. And we accepted 15 companies. And since we're sector and stage agnostic, meaning you can be in any sector and at any stage of your business, um, and we're able to help provide support, uh, there's a nice mix. So 15 companies were accepted, and you know the the, the, the cohorts continue. And given given that uh, you're stage agnostic, I mean, what are you what are you looking for? Because some could be just a concept, some could have been you know in business for a couple couple three four five years. What what are you yep. what are you looking for? You know, across that spectrum of of stage, we're looking for companies that are located here in Hawaii. It doesn't matter which island. This is a virtual program, so we're able to provide the same type of support for every single company, regardless of what island you're on. And, uh, you know, those that are interested in growing here. So we've had companies who are literally just getting started. You know, they validated an idea and they're looking how to get to the next step. And we've had companies that are already making millions of dollars a year in annual revenue. And, uh, you know, they're looking to evolve their business, continue to grow and perhaps scale uh, beyond Hawaii's shores. And and give us a sense of what happens over the course of four weeks. I mean, are are they with you Every every day of those four weeks, or or is it you know uh, let's say every other day? I mean, and, and what is what is it that you cover? Uh, the four weeks are pretty intense. I don't think there's a single company that's come through that hasn't said it's intense. Uh, so we cover a lot of stuff in a very short period of time, and it's again, it's meant to be exactly that. Um, but we don't meet every day. It's virtual. Uh, we know that other almost everyone has day jobs at this point, mm-hmm, right? Trying mm-hmm. to to get through COVID and get through life. Um, and so we design it around their schedules. It's very accommodating. Uh, 
and we bring in other founders, we bring in small business owners, we bring in investors, uh, we bring in all the things that companies need today who are in the cohort in order to continue to grow their business. So it's very specific to the needs of the cohort. How would you differentiate perhaps uh, what you would do with Prex versus uh, applying for like a blue startups type of type of uh, accelerator program? Um, I think, well, actually, one of the things that companies who are coming through are actually interested in is also how to apply to the other local accelerators or accelerators around the world, right? And so it's getting them ready for that. And that's why we've called it pre-X. So whatever the X is, whether you're pre-customer, pre-revenue, uh, pre-fundraising, pre-accelerator, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the program is meant to, to provide you with that pathway in order to a, a, obtain your X. Oh, great! So it could, yeah, like you said, it's a it's a uh, pre stage for whether you want to, you know, maybe jump into the full on blue startups accelerator or monop yep. or elemental and and then uh, take it take it to that next level. So That's tell me what's um, what's in store for cohort three and and wh- where are you at in terms of you know the application process? So we just launched applications uh, last week. We've got a info session coming up. So anyone that wanted to learn more is free to sign up for that info session. It's on November 16th, which is a Tuesday. It's during lunchtime, 12 to 1. Again, trying to provide the maximum amount of flexibility for all the business owners out there. Um, and, you know, we'll run applications for another maybe three weeks before we close it out and uh, select our final cohort members. And when does the cohort actually start? Cohort starts uh, mid-December. Mid-December. December 13th. Okay, and then you're looking for, you're looking for uh, another maybe 15, 15 companies to be a part of the cohort. Yep. We've had 30 companies come through so far between the first two cohorts, um, and we'll accept as many companies that are um, available, committed, and you know, interested in the pre program. So as long as there's a fit, we definitely have the capacity to support. Sounds good. And then, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have you back on, and, and we'll get to feature a couple of companies uh, that you might want to select uh, in a couple of weeks. So we'll look forward to that. But in the meantime, if people want to sign up for uh, this Cohort 3 and, and, and check it out, where can they go? You can go to AccelerateHI, so that's X-L-R-8-H-I.com, and they can learn all about Prex uh, and connect with us through that. <laughs> Sounds good. Mahalo, Omar, for joining us. Mahalo, Bert. And, of course, we'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Dr. Ken Chambers. He's an astronomer, director of the Pan-STARRS Observatories. And, of course, uh, we have near-Earth orbit expert, Wayne, I mean, uh, Richard Wainscote. And he's uh, here to talk about asteroid hunting and Pan-STARRS. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School. Welcome back to Bite Marks, Ca- Ca- <laughs> Bite Marks Cafe on Hawaii Public Radio. And of course, I'm happy to welcome Dr. Ken Chambers. He's an astronomer and director of Pan Stars. And of course, uh, over that's over at the Institute for Astronomy and the... Um, Near-Earth Orbit expert on the call is Richard Wainscote, and uh, they're both here to talk about pan stars and asteroid hunting and, of course, this uh, grant that they got from the uh, folks over at NASA. And I want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. 
Well, thanks very much for having us. We, we yeah. Enjoy all the good work you do. Well, thanks a lot for uh, coming on, and and of course, uh, I'm always uh, I've got I've got a place in my heart for things happening at at Institute for, Institute for Astronomy and all the cool work that you folks do over there. And of course, um, maybe Ken, you know, give us a give us a quick um, <clears throat> sort of a primer on what is what is PanStars. PanStars has been around for a while. It's it's a telescope up on Haleakala, uh, and and maybe give us a quick uh, kind of. Uh, 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 you know, overview of what, what goes on at PANSTARS. Sure. So uh, PANSTARS, PANSTARS stands for Panoramic Survey Telescope and Rapid Response System. That, that's what the acronym stands for. Um, and, and as you say, we've had a, <clears throat> uh, the, the, what we call the PS1 telescope, which was the first one, has been surveying the sky and finding asteroids for about 11 years now, a little over a decade. Um but we've just brought online um, in a uh, nice way the second one, PanSTARRS 2. So we survey, we can survey twice the area um, each night. So what the, the everyone likes to focus on the telescopes because that's the cool part. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also, PanSTARRS is a huge computer science project. We collect an awful lot of data. <laughs> well, um, uh, almost two terabytes a night with the two telescopes. Wow. So it's a huge amount of data, and that all has to be processed, and we want to get results out relatively quickly. So it's a, a, a big uh, cyber infrastructure project as well. We have a huge cluster uh, at the University of Hawaii, computing cluster, uh, computing center on Manoa, uh, and that's a big part of it. So we survey the sky every night. We can't do the whole sky, but we do as much as we can. You put your fist out at arm's length. That's about uh, the, we have a field of view that's about three degrees across, about mm-hmm. six times the size of the full moon. So that's the, our field of view, and we march across the sky, taking picture after picture after picture. And the idea is to compare that. So we do typically we come back and we look at the same part of the sky uh, four times, and we look at what's changed in the meantime. So an object like an asteroid that's moving very slowly, but as we come back to it and we look at it again, we see that it's shifted by a tiny bit. Um, we can discover asteroids by looking at the differences between those images. We also can look at it against our, the, the, uh, what we call the static sky, the stacked uh, sky that was built up over a long time, which is a very deep image. Look at that and see what's changed. So we find everything that goes bang in the night, um, like supernova, but our primary mission is to find these things that move, all the moving objects in the solar system. Mm-hmm. Now, now, you know, being that I'm, I'm kind of a communications geek, uh, you say you have uh, two terabytes of, uh, of data every night, and, and this is taking place up on, on mm-hmm. Haleakala. Uh, tell me, how does that two terabytes get to your uh, massive computer storage system, probably based in, uh, in Manoa? I figure... Nobody's driving down the mountain and, and get, jumping on a plane, right, to bring the, the the disk home. I mean, how do you? So, what's the what's the communication infrastructure no, that enables a, that? We have a dedicated fiber um, that um, connects us um, down to um, our facility in in Pukulani. Right? Mm-hmm. So we have the, mm-hmm. the, the telescope is actually operated uh, from the IFA's um, building in Pukulani, um, and then it goes from there through the through the network over to the UH campus. 
So is there a routine that you pretty much do every day once the once the data is gathered, uh, somebody hits send and and uh, it, oh no, it's all it's all automated. So we want the the data is transferred uh, automatically as soon as the exposure is finished. Mm-hmm. It's transferred over to um, the ITC, and we begin processing on it immediately. We can't do uh, linkages. Try to identify a particular moving object. We want all four exposures for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but about uh, in something like. 20 minutes after the last exposure, we can go through and do linkages for everything. And then we send that out immediately to the Minor Planet Center, uh, which is at the Smithsonian Institute in Boston. And they broadcast it out to the the world. So because your initial guess at an orbit is, is, is a guess, and as time goes on, the errors add up, it's good if people follow it up as quickly as possible. So we broadcast it out to the world wow. as soon as we possibly can. And then there's a network of uh, astronomers around the world, each with their own telescope, who, who wait for those things to come out and go and make another observation based on our initial orbit. Um, and then they add that additional data. That improves the orbit. That reduces the errors. And then more and more people can follow it up. hmm and how big is your network of astronomers that are actually taking a look at the data that you folks produce? Oh, there's there's maybe uh, a dozen or so that are very methodical about it, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a larger community that, that does it episodically, right, when they have good conditions or they have time or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's, uh, it, it's a large group of people. Um, but the, the main players, there's... You know, the very top players, there's probably half a dozen. Um, and then people who do stuff relatively frequently, uh, maybe a dozen or so observatories around the world. So those, um, But then down in the, and there's smaller ones that do it less frequently. So the, 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 the top uh, contributors, I mean, are they affiliated with other universities? Yeah, most of them are, are affiliated with uh, an observatory. Um, we um, find... Uh, nearly half of all the ones that are found by the rest of the world put together. So um, we are the, the major player in the in the game. Um, but we rely on these follow-ups, and um, Richard can talk about that we do follow-up ourselves, particularly using the CFHT telescope on, on Hawaii, and Richard can talk about that. Yeah, yeah, and I want, I want to get the Richard into this conversation. And, and, and Richard, so explain, what is what is a... Uh, a, a near-Earth orbit expert, and, yeah. and what is it that well, you near do? Near-Earth object. Um, so I think I just wanted to clarify a little bit what Ken spoke about. So the the what we actually see when when we look with the telescope when we find moving objects, the vast majority of moving objects that we see are actually main belt asteroids, and they're kind of boring. Um, and that's not the aim of, of the research. So the aim of the research is to find near-Earth objects or objects that might that have a potential of hitting the Earth and causing damage or causing death at some point in the future. So what we actually search for are objects that have unusual motion, that is sort of motion that's inconsistent with them being a regular main belt asteroid. So those are the ones that the the main focus of all the sort of worldwide attention um, focuses upon. And and we ourselves try to sort of 
process and get them out to the rest of the world within maybe one to two hours of the last exposure finishing. And if we can, what we try to do is recover the, them again the same night with PANSTARS so that instead of getting an orbital arc of about one hour, which can be kind of ambiguous and really a little bit difficult to find the object one day later, for example, mm -hmm. we, can, we can extend that orbital arc maybe to four hours and we can, in a lot of cases, determine how immediately how far it is away and that makes it much, much easier to find one day later. So the aim of all of this is to find an orbit for, the, for each of these objects. And once you have the orbit, you know whether it's, whether it's a dangerous object or not, basically. And, and, and Richard, so tell me, how, does it, how is it that you can determine the size typically you know, by, <clears throat> by looking at these uh, observations? Is there, is there something that, uh, you know, obviously if it's, if it's of a certain size, it's a certain kind of like uh, uh, largeness you know, on the image itself? Is that, is that typically how you would tell? It's not, it's not largest on the image. It's, it's really how fast it is moving and the orbit. And within a night, remember that we're on a planet that's rotating around the, the polar axis. So we move, I mean, the telescope moves, so there's a parallax that, that happens. And that parallax is usually how we can find sort of almost immediately how far, how far something is away and how big it is. We get a pretty good guess. We don't know it perfectly. Mm -hmm. and, and we can... We can actually get it wildly wrong, and the case where it might be wildly wrong is if the object is an interstellar object and is not sort of in an elliptical orbit around the sun, but it's like whipping through the solar system. Mm -hmm. That's a really special case. We're always kind of really sensitive because we, we did find the first interstellar object called Oumuamua. Um, right, we, right. We should have found the second one, but the telescope broke. Um, and would have found it if the telescope hadn't been broken at that time. So it's a sort of a, a, a byproduct of what we do is, is actually finding these other really unique, really exciting objects, that, uh, these interstellar objects. But that's not what we're funded for. We're funded to find near-Earth objects. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I do want to <clears throat> kind of get into uh, how the folks over at NASA uh, wanted to further engage your services to... Uh, I guess, build upon this catalog of, of, of asteroids. So we will hold that thought. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with Ken Chambers and Richard Wayne's coat. And, of course, this is Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe on Hawaii Public Radio. And, of course, uh, I'm Bert Lum. And if you're just joining us, we're talking to Dr. Ken Chambers, astronomer, director of Pan-STARRS Observatories on the uh, on this one on Haleakala. And he's part of uh, the Institute for Astronomy. And, of course, we have Richard Wainscote, and he's a near-Earth object expert. And, of course, we're talking about Pan-STARRS and detecting those close encounters with asteroids and of course, right before the break, uh, it, uh, Richard was, was kind of describing how to kind of detect these large uh, asteroids and, and catalog them. And uh, I guess, uh, Ken, you know, you 
folks recently got a pretty sizable award. I guess it was about $15 million from NASA. And from what I understand, you know, of all the <clears throat> asteroids that are kind of cataloged, I mean, it's like, what, 35%? And, and NASA has this charter by Congress to get up to 90%. I mean, what are we talking about? I mean, what 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 is that 35% represent? It's not that's not all the asteroids that are kind of no, near that, the earth. That's right? ones that are that are bigger than 140 meters. Got it. Okay. That, that was sort of the the um, limit that was chosen that, that that you know, that's sort of at the level of incapable of wiping out a city. Mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So that's it, so that that's sort of, you know, you got to pick your level of <laughs> of destruction of, uh, uh, preparedness. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, and so that's just you know, so you have everything from uh, that scale, which is sort of the uh, destroying something on the scale of a city, to, of course, historically we had the one uh, 65 million years ago that, that uh, wiped out the dinosaurs and gave mammals a, ch- a chance to thrive, but, but wiped out 95% of the species on Earth. So you have this whole range. And, of course, the small ones are much, much, much more common than the big ones. Mm-hmm. So we hope we found most of the big ones. So there's this huge gap of all these ones that are uh, big enough to wipe out a city or bigger that you want to catalog and you want to know where they are. So when when the estimate of what we currently know to be out there of that size being 35%, I mean, you're talking about another, what is it, uh, uh, 55% that is undetected or not not currently, I guess, cataloged. Yeah, that's, and that's 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 what we're here for, right? We, it's um, one one way to think about Panstar is it's a, it's an insurance policy, right? Your your house is unlikely to get wiped out by a hurricane, but if it does, you're in serious trouble. So you take out an insurance policy, which is where you pay a little bit of money, against the chance that it'll hit. So the the, the probability that an asteroid will hit is very 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 small. But the consequences can be very, very, very large. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the risk is the product of those two. And you want to be able to, you want your insurance policy to match that risk, mm-hmm. right? So Panstars is, is the insurance. Uh, it's, it's unlikely to happen in our lifetime. But if it does, the consequences could be so catastrophic. You absolutely want to have a program like Panstars to find these things. Mm-hmm. And And Richard, you know, in terms of, upping the level of, of uh, cataloging, you know, these asteroids. So if, if PanStars is, is already doing, you know, nightly, nightly uh, observations and we're at 35%, what is it that's going to be needed to happen in order to increase that amount to 90%? So, I mean, if it's any comfort, I think the number is 38% now, and I think that the 3% difference between what the, the 35 that you reported and the 38, which is now, is, is basically what PANSARS and Catalina Sky Survey have found in the last year or so. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. we're chugging along, but it, it's going to take a long time unless there's a, a big change. So there are a couple of things in the works. I, I think I expect PANSARS to continue, and, and PANSARS is actually excellent at finding these, these bigger objects. That is actually one of our strengths finding these sort of 140-meter or larger objects. But there is a, 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 an observatory in Chile called the Vera Rubin Observatory that is going to make a fairly big 
contribution um, in terms of helping this search for near-Earth objects. Um, that is getting has been substantially delayed by COVID and all of the sort of restrictions related to that. And then there's a, a space-based mission um, called um, NEOSM. The acronym is N-E-O-S-M. I think it's Near-Earth Objects Survey Mission. And that is going to go to a Lagrange point inside the Earth's orbit between the, the Earth and the Sun. And we'll look basically at, at it'll be a really good place. So that's going to be an infrared telescope. And that will be a very powerful tool as well. But that's not going to see stuff so well in the sort of the opposition direction, the, the place in the sky that's opposite the sun. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think the, the other sort of sobering thing that we constantly see is that some of these near-Earth objects can have these really, really awkward orbits where they go around the sun in sort of like these integer number of years and they come close to the Earth in the daytime. When, when they're near Earth. So that's, it's sort of nearly impossible for a regular nighttime telescope to see these things, and then they wander out really far away. So there, there are a, a bunch of these objects in, in these really almost pathological orbits that are, it's just a lot of patience, I think, maybe is needed. It's not, this is not something we solve tomorrow or we, no matter how much money you throw at it, you solve in five years. It's, it's going to be a bit of a hard slog. It's going to take 10 or 20 years to, to find 90% of these, um, in, at least in my opinion, of, the, of these 140-meter-sized objects. So, so, Richard, you know, in terms of the NASA grant, I mean, the, the monies that were made available from a timeline standpoint, you figure that that's going to be uh, uh, how much it's going to cost over the course of the next, what, 10 years? So, so, so the, the $15 million grant that, that Ken got will fund the telescope operations for three years. And then after that, in about two years' time, we have to um, submit another grant, and hopefully we get, the, the funding gets continued. Got it, got it. And, and Richard, so in terms of uh, actually, I mean, I, I, let, me, let me get Ken in, into this one. Ken, if, if something is found and something is detected that might actually get pretty uh, threatening to the Earth, what is it that you would then recommend? Well, that's a, that's a $65 million question. But the, the way it works is uh, the, the NASA has a planetary defense director, um, and, and his office keeps track of what we find every night very mm -hmm. carefully. Right? And if there is one that's uh, potentially um, hazardous, then um, the community focuses on that and tries to get a lot of data. But what you don't ever want to do is put out a false alarm, right? Right, right. <laughs> the, the, odds, the odds are very good that one that, that even if we're in the initial error circle, uh, it, it might hit. Um, the odds are very low. So you want to, you want to be very certain about it before you uh, make any kind of announcement. So we had a, a, an initial case. Well, maybe Richard should talk about the last, the last one we found. Well, you know, we only have a, a, a short period of time before we, we have to, you know, move on. But, uh, you know, I, I, I do so want to keep... Happens is, what happens is uh, that planetary defense director then goes to the NASA administrator and says, we got, you know, if, if there is one that looks like it is coming in, says it's incoming, yeah, he goes to the president's science advisor. Science advisor goes to, you know, informs the president. Um, and and uh, then at some point an announcement is made. 
I see. I see. Well, I'll be I'll be definitely keeping track of your guys' project. I'll I'll put the a uh, uh, link up on the show notes uh, for later on tonight, and uh, excited to, to to just get the chance to talk to you guys. So, Dr. Ken Chambers, astronomer, director of Pan Stars Observatories over at the. Haleakala, uh, and of course, uh, Dr. Ray, uh, Richard Wainscoat, and he's the near-Earth objects expert. And I want to thank them both for joining us today. And of course, thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll find out about the worldwide walls, or powwow, and the maker's place, and how they're using NFTs. If you missed any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on BiteMarksCafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email me at BiteMarks at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. Our engineer is David Chong. You can catch us on HBR One every Wednesday or anytime via the HBR app, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. You stay safe and stay awesome. We'll see you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.